Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop offers additional reflections on the coronavirus pandemic, including a response to the perennial question, why is this happening? Then Bishop continues his breakdown of the Easter Vigil Mass. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. We are social distancing here, keeping our, our distance. It just looks like about four feet. Kyle, would you back up? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. We got, got to be careful here. Uh, how are things going for you? Wow, it's been a intense time for sure, going through this crisis and trying to continue to shepherd our people, especially in prayer and the live stream liturgies and really thinking a lot about all those around the world in our own country and throughout the world who are very sick, those who are dying, those who've died, all the suffering. So it's been very much on my heart. And uh, of course, now it's Holy Week. So this is really what it's all about, how we think about the suffering and the passion, the death of our Lord, and then all those people who are sharing in his suffering. Mm But what gives us hope is, and it's really the great hope, is Jesus' triumph over death. Through love, he overcame sin and conquered death. So here we are in the midst of this pandemic, and we're in Holy Week. So it's the Christian answer to, or God's answer, to the mystery that we're experiencing during this time. And... A lot of our parishes are doing live streaming so people can celebrate Mass at home with their their parish. You've been doing Masses at uh, 10 a.m. Sundays from masses, the cathedral. But what? also all the liturgies of Holy Week will be live. I'll be live streaming okay. um, on Holy Thursday, actually, two Masses, the Chrism Mass in the morning mm-hmm. at 10 a.m. So I invite all of the listeners to either listen to it on Redeemer Radio or watch it on Facebook or YouTube through the Diocesan website. And then, of course, the Holy Thursday evening Mass of the Lord's Supper, which will be at 7 o'clock p.m. Mm -hmm. The Good Friday celebration of our Lord's Passion will be at 1 o'clock p.m. And then the Easter Vigil on Saturday night at 9 p.m. And then back to 10 a.m. on Easter Sunday morning. So... It's a lot of homilies to prepare, but but I love to prepare homilies, you know, in the context of doing some reading and meditation and praying. So I invite everyone to participate this way in the liturgies of Holy Week. But why don't we begin, Kyle, with a prayer? I'd like to use the prayer that we, that's the opening prayer for Mass on this Wednesday of Holy Week, but then add a prayer especially for the sick during this pandemic using the most ancient prayer that we know of asking our ladies intercession the subtuum presidium in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen O god who willed your son to submit for our sake to the yoke of the cross so that you might drive from us the power of the enemy Grant us, your servants, to attain the grace of the resurrection. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We fly to thy protection, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petitions in our necessities, but deliver us always from all danger, O glorious and blessed Virgin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you have a question for Bishop to answer, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Bishop will continue offering his reflections as we navigate the coronavirus pandemic right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And with the coronavirus and all the things that have been going on in the world, I know a lot of people are are concerned, nervous, anxious. Some people are talking about 
God's role in all of this? Why would God let this happen? Some might even say that God wanted this to happen or caused it to happen. How are we supposed to view a tragedy like this and God's role in it? That's probably, Kyle, the most difficult mystery for us to try to comprehend. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's spoken of as the problem of evil Mm -hmm. or the mystery of evil, the mysterium iniquitatis in Latin, the mystery of iniquity. And I think it's helpful for us when we reflect on the mystery of evil, that there are two kinds of evil that we confront in our life. One is moral evil, and the other is physical evil. And I always find it easier to talk about moral evil, and moral evil is what we call sin. So when we ask, why is there sin? Why is there moral evil? We know that its origin is humanity's rejection of God man's opposition to God. Mm -hmm. God is in no way, no way, directly or indirectly, the cause of moral evil. Hmm. Sin entered the world because of man's disobedience. It's true that God allows sin. He allows this moral evil. And we can ask, well, why? Because he created us with the great gift of freedom. This is part of being created in God's image. If we didn't have this gift of freedom, we wouldn't be capable of love. Right. And God wanted us to share in his love. Now, the other side of the coin, of course, is that we can hate. We can reject God and others. We can rebel against him and we can disobey his commandments. We can kill. We can lie. We can steal. But moral evil is clearly our fault. When you think about, I was thinking about the greatest moral evil that was ever committed. So what we're going to remember on Good Friday, Mm -hmm. the rejection and murder of God's only son. And that was caused by the sins of all men. All sinners, as the catechism teaches us, were the authors of Christ's passion. I remember the preaching of St. Francis of Assisi. He said that demons didn't crucify Jesus. He said to the people, it's you who have crucified him and crucify him still when you delight in your vices and sins. Hmm. You know, so that's why during Lent, what do we do? We, we do penance for our sins. Right. And, you know, even now during Holy Week, we continue to do penance through prayer and fasting and almsgiving. We turn to the Lord with sorrow for our sins, and we place our trust in his infinite mercy. So that's one kind of evil, the evil of sin, you know, moral evil. And, of course, we know that that Jesus overcomes that because he takes the sin of the world on his own shoulders Mm -hmm. and, you know, is crucified for us. And in his obedience to the Father, in his love, he overcomes moral evil. I want to move now to the other kind of evil, which is actually more mysterious, I think, and more difficult to understand, and that's physical evil. Physical evil includes things like natural disasters, sickness, death. Why are there pandemics like the coronavirus pandemic? Well, on, I think first, on the one hand, we know that harmony with creation was broken by original sin. That because of man, creation is now subject to its bondage to decay, as St. Paul taught. Hmm. And that death made its entrance into human history also because of original sin. In some mysterious way, Moral evil, sin, affected the cosmos. For me, this isn't a totally acceptable answer to the full question about physical evil. Now, it's true that sometimes physical evil is caused by man's sin. For example, when we abuse the environment, that can cause harm to people and to the earth. 
even some natural disasters occur because of not taking care of the earth, mm-hmm. not taking care of our common home. Sure. Sometimes man can also cause physical evil by taking elements of nature and making them lethal. For example, biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons. Sure. Okay? But there are other physical evils that can't, in my opinion, be easily explained by man's sin, by moral evil. After all, there was destruction and corruption in the physical universe before the creation of man and woman, Hmm. before the fall. Right. So what can we say about physical evils that humans aren't responsible for, like the coronavirus pandemic or natural disasters like earthquakes and floods and tsunamis? You know, the big question is, is God responsible? Mm -hmm. I mean, don't we call these things acts of God? Right. You know, I don't really like that term. (laughs) I think it's unfortunate an unfortunate expression because I don't think God wills these things either. Mm-hmm. Some preachers during this time have been preaching that God willed the coronavirus pandemic, that he did this to warn us, that he sent this pestilence hmm. to punish us for our sins. And I think, what kind of God would will the suffering and death of innocent people? Mm-hmm. I don't believe that God wills physical evil, but but that he allows it. Mm-hmm. We know why God allows moral evil, because he blesses us with freedom. But why does God allow physical evils like diseases and natural disasters? And I'm just speculating here, but it seems, because this is a mystery. I mean, I don't know that we'll ever fully understand in this life, but it seems that God allows physical evils when they are a consequence of the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. Now, God created the world good, according to the book of Genesis. So what does the church say about this? There's a paragraph in the catechism, number 310, that I've pondered many, many times and many hours. It's, it's number 310. And the catechism teaches that, and I quote, with infinite wisdom and goodness, God freely willed to create a world in a state of journeying toward its ultimate perfection. In God's plan, this process of becoming involves the appearance of certain beings and the disappearance of others, the existence of the more perfect alongside the less perfect, both constructive and destructive forces of nature. With physical good, there exists also physical evil, as long as creation has not reached perfection. Hmm. You can see why I've pondered that paragraph for hours because, and I think this is one way to think about it. What we call natural disasters, like volcanoes, earthquakes, and floods, Mm -hmm. they aren't actually evil in themselves. They're part of the evolution of the universe. Sure. Many geological processes, for example, they occur as matters of course because of physical good, like the development of continents and, you know, the islands and Mm -hmm. things like that. But we call physical processes, these geological processes like earthquakes, evils when they cause harm to creatures, especially human beings. I think we could say the same with biological life. Think of a deadly virus. Viruses, what are they? They consist of genetic material and a coating of protein. And in the process of evolution, they've even caused some good things. Though we'll call viruses evil when they cause harm. They can be destructive. They can cause sickness and death like the coronavirus at this time seems to me that God doesn't will this, but he allows sickness and death as part of biological life. Hmm. This is part of God's creation of the world, as the catechism says, in a state of journeying towards its ultimate perfection. So getting back to the two kinds of evil, moral and physical, you know, and here we are in Holy Week, we're commemorating this week 
the events by which God conquers moral evil. The Son of God made man, Jesus Christ, substituted his obedience for our disobedience. He loves us so much that he offered his life for us. He took upon himself our sins and offered himself as a sacrifice for us. We say and we pray by his holy cross, Jesus has redeemed the world. I was thinking on Good Friday this week, you know, I invite people in their homes to venerate the cross. You know, we usually do Mm. that in the Good Friday celebration of the Lord's Passion. If you're watching the live stream Good Friday service that I'll be leading from the Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception at 1 o'clock p.m., maybe at that point when I venerate the cross, people can venerate the Holy Cross in their homes, take a crucifix down from the wall and kiss it. Mm-hmm. And to remember, this cross is our hope. Right. The whole church sings, Hail, O Holy Cross, our only hope. And we remember it's by this Holy Cross that Jesus conquered moral evil. He conquered sin. But what about physical evil? What about the suffering caused by the coronavirus and natural disasters? Well, I'd say Jesus overcomes these things too. That's what we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead. Not like Lazarus. Lazarus was resuscitated. He returned to this biological life that's subject to corruption and decay, etc. Now, that was a great miracle, the raising of Lazarus, but Lazarus would suffer and die again. Death would steal his life again. Mm -hmm. But think of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a much greater reality. I remember Pope Benedict spoke of the resurrection of Jesus as an evolutionary leap. Hmm. So Jesus rose to an entirely new and indestructible kind of life beyond the biological life that can be harmed by viruses Mm -hmm. and bacteria, that can be harmed by sickness and, and ultimately by death. So physical evil is conquered by Jesus's resurrection. Hmm. He conquered death. He opened for us the realm of a new life, a new life that's not subject to biology, a new life that's not subject to pain or corruption. It's a life that's eternal and it's indestructible. The Son of God invites us to share in the communion of life and love that he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the life of heaven. So would that be the, I forget what the wording in paragraph 310, but the perfect world that you're talking about? The perfection, yeah. In other words, the world was created in this state of journeying. Uh So there are these things that happen in, uh, you know, the evolution of the universe in this state of journeying, and there are constructive and destructive forces of nature Mm -hmm. in this, uh, you know, this process of becoming. And it says with physical good, there exists also physical evil as long as creation has not reached perfection. Right. So with the resurrection of Jesus, now you say, well, we still have physical evil now after the resurrection of Jesus. But I would say God's victory over sin and death has been won. But it's a victory yet to come. Hmm. What does St. Paul write? That creation is groaning in expectation of the glory that will be revealed. Hmm. For now, we're still in this struggle. There's still sin and there's still pandemics and there are still natural disasters. But the good news is that these evils will pass away Hmm. because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So what's our task now? Our task is to join in his work of redemption to follow in his footsteps, anticipating with hope that there will be a new heaven and new earth. You know, we read about that in scripture. So we anticipate that with hope and by living lives of of obedience and love and service. Hopefully thinking about this problem or mystery of evil during this Holy Week, I hope will bring consolation to people in the midst of this time, this challenging time, and especially those who are carrying heavy crosses because of the coronavirus 
And although God doesn't will it to happen, he doesn't want it to happen, and doesn't directly cause it to happen, he can still bring good out of it. And I think we're starting to see some of that already with humanity, the way we're kind of bonding together and looking at ways that we can help each other out, even in our hardships, in our difficulty, in financial troubles that many, if not most or all families will be going through to say, how can I help out somebody else that might be worse off than me or a business that's struggling? What can we do to keep them in business? And just seeing the way humanity is kind of rallying around this, I can see how God is working through it. Even though he doesn't want it to happen, he can still bring about good through tragedy. And And we see that all through history, Yeah, how God brings good out of evil. And that happens when we cooperate with him Mm -hmm. in this, when we don't turn like to bitterness because of it, but then we turn to love. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because one of the things when I think about the, the pandemic happening at this time, I think about how humanity and our culture has drifted away from God. So let me talk about this a minute. Okay. I want to talk about hope. When there's this lack of faith in God, people put their hopes in other things. They put their hope, for example, in money and material things. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, now we're at a time with these economic problems. So some people, when their hope has been in those material things, they despair now Mm because they don't have a hope that's beyond that. Right. So one of the difficult things, and I hope we learn a lesson from this. There are a lot of things we can put our hope in. We put our hope in just physical health, mm-hmm. or we put our ultimate hope in, yeah, things like physical health uh, or, even or f- earthly life. Or family members. Right. Or even family members. But we need to have that great hope, the ultimate hope. Mm-hmm. And that hope is God. That hope is eternal life. That hope is Jesus Christ. Now, I was thinking about how we even put our hope in science and technology. Think about that. I mean, there's been great progress, and it's Mm -hmm. good in the areas of science and technology. Now, not all of it's good because science has also created nuclear weapons. But but I'm thinking about the good things, Mm -hmm. you know, even the intense efforts being made now to develop a vaccine. I think that, that is really important, and that is a great good. But I think we learn at this time, and especially since we don't have a vaccine, that if we put all our hope in science and technology, we're still going to be disappointed Mm -hmm. because there's still death. Mm -hmm. You know, there's still going to be death. Maybe we learn that lesson that ultimately, if we're going to have really to have peace in our hearts or joy in our lives... It's only when we put our hope in God mm-hmm. who, who overcomes death. That's, I think, the greatest lesson that will come out of this, that people, that we recognize our need for God, our dependence on God, that only in him can we place all of our hope. Right. All right. Well, this has been great and a good thing for us to reflect on and keep in mind as well and look at how God might be able to use us individually to help others and how we can really rally around this and and, and be a better community because of it. We've kind of taken a break here a little bit from talking about the Easter Vigil readings. Maybe coming up, we can talk about some of them. We talked about the Old Testament readings. Maybe we can talk about some of the New Testament readings. That'll be coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And over the past several episodes, you've broken down the Old Testament readings of the Easter Vigil, helping us prepare for Easter, as we're supposed to be doing during Lent, which I think has been really helpful for a lot of us. And thought maybe we could take a look at some of the the New Testament readings, starting with St. Paul's letter to the Romans, which is chapter 6. Yeah, after we hear the seven... Old Testament readings. By the way, we'll be using all seven readings at the Easter Vigil 
mass that I'll be celebrating okay. that will be live streamed again on Holy Saturday night at nine o'clock p.m. Mm-hmm. So everyone's able to to watch. And right after those seven readings are proclaimed, and and the priest says a prayer at the end, the altar candles are lit and the the bells are rung and the Gloria is sung. It's really always such a beautiful part of the Easter Vigil Mass. Then we sit down again. So we have that, right. that exuberant Gloria and the bells and yeah. the, the candles and, and everything. But then we sit and we listen to this reading, this wonderful reading from St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's, as you said, it's in chapter 6, verses 3 to 11. Do you want to read that, Kyle? Sure. Brothers and sisters, are you aware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were indeed buried with him through baptism into death, so that Jesus, as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that our sinful body might be done away with, that we might no longer be in slavery to sin, for a dead person has been absolved from sin. If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We know that Christ, raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. As to his life, he lives for God. Consequently, you too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin, and living for God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Kyle. This is quite an epistle, this dying and rising with Christ in Mm -hmm. baptism. Remember, it's at the Easter Vigil that we normally have baptism, so this is a, a very appropriate reading. And Paul assumes that the the Romans aren't unaware of what he's talking about. He begins by saying, brothers and sisters, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, they they could follow his reasoning because they've already been instructed in the faith. So. Uh-huh. But Paul hadn't visited the Romans yet, so, so he didn't really know this community. In person, he doesn't know them. But he's reviewing some basic Christian teaching on baptism and what this means for our life. So the critical point is that Christians were baptized into Christ Jesus. Okay? He uses the preposition into We were baptized into Christ Jesus. And he's speaking about our incorporation into Christ, that baptism unites us who are believers with Christ. And also, by the way, that we're inserted into his body, the church, through baptism. Mm -hmm. We become Christians. Now, this is a mystery of faith and St. Paul is straining to communicate this mystery. But then he goes on and says, okay, we're baptized into Christ Jesus. He says, we were baptized into his death and buried with him and raised from the dead, just like Jesus was. So according to Paul, baptism is really a, a symbolic representation of Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. Now, when you think about death and burial with Christ, Mm -hmm. how is that signified in baptism? Well, we're immersed in water. Mm -hmm. We go down into death and burial with Christ, but then we're emerged from the water. We're brought up. So resurrection with Christ is signified in baptism by coming out of the water, mm-hmm. okay? We're talking about baptism by immersion, obviously. Right. Now, does this mean this is just purely symbolic? No, this is something that's that's real. It, it has an effect. It's what we call efficacious. Okay. What Christian theology would later call a sacrament. Mm-hmm. Baptism is a sacrament. Something real happens. Something, it has an effect. It's not just symbolic. So what happens in baptism is we are 
transferred from this condition of sin and death into risen life. It's through baptism, really, that we receive the blessings that flow from the dying and rising of Jesus. These are what we can call the saving effects of Christ's death. So when we're baptized, we go undergo a death to the bondage of sin, hmm. and we're brought to life. We're given grace, God's grace. And this is all by the power of God. God's the one who's baptizing. Okay, you have a priest or a deacon baptizing, but mm -hmm. they're acting in, in the person of Christ. It's God. It's Christ who's baptizing. So in and through the sacrament of baptism, God is working. It's a hidden action of God that's taking place. I don't really know if St. Paul came up with this, this theological way of presenting the reality of baptism, but I, I kind of think that it wasn't original with Paul. It was probably also part of the early Christian understanding because remember in the scriptures, Jesus would speak of his passion and death as a baptism. So I think it goes back to Jesus himself, really. Uh -huh. And when you think about it, water itself, water, which is the, the matter or the element of baptism, has that aspect of death and life. I mean, you think of the flood, Noah. The water was destructive. Mm -hmm. But also, water is necessary for life, okay? We need life to grow and to flourish. We need water for our survival. So it's kind of a natural element for this. So what's the purpose behind this, behind our dying? Mm -hmm. And I think we find it there right in the reading. It says, we were buried with him through baptism into death so that we might also live in newness of life. You know, just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we might live in newness of life. So there's a spiritual resurrection that regenerates us in mm -hmm. grace and makes it possible for us to live in a new way, this newness of life, so that we can pursue holiness. We can live differently. We can pursue salvation. So we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish something that's beyond the ability of our human nature. We're empowered by grace because we have the indwelling presence of God by baptism. And therefore, we live in a newness of life. So I think this is really very, very deep, very beautiful. And then Paul in the, the other verses that you read as you continue, he unpacks this even more. And it's pretty dense when you think about it. If you look at in, I think it's verse 5, he writes, For if we have grown into union with him through a death like his, we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. So in other words, there's a spiritual bond between the Christian and Christ. We've grown into union with him. It's kind of the same word that in Greek for it means grown together. It's kind of like in farming where you have a young uh, branch that's grafted onto the trunk of a tree. Sure. They become organically united. That's, that's kind of what happens to us. We're grafted onto Christ. And once that happens, Paul says, we shall also be united with him in the resurrection. And then he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that our sinful body might be done away with, that we might no longer be in slavery to sin. So our old self, literally it's our old man, was, was crucified so that our sinful body, the body of sin, might be done away with. Because really our old self is the sinful self, the egocentric self. We were really living as enemies of God. But thanks to the grace of baptism, we've been crucified with Christ and laid to rest in his tomb. 
So we used to be dominated, our body was dominated by sin, by serving basically sin. But now, having been crucified with Christ and laid to rest in, in, the, t- in the tomb, that's, that's all done away with. We're no longer slaves to sin. That's the purpose behind the death of these old relationships. It's that we might no longer be in slavery to sin. Now, notice he speaks about, this is really interesting, for a dead person has been absolved from sin, is what Paul writes. Right. So when you think about it, when we die physically, we're released from the burdens of life, the duties Mm. and obligations of life. The same is true when we've died with Christ in baptism. We're delivered from the burdens, from the guilt of sin, the power of sin that once dominated our lives. So anyone who has died with Christ has been absolved from sin. You know, we know that that's one of the effects of baptism. Baptism's the sacrament of forgiveness. We've been justified from sin. So this is pretty deep. This, you know, baptism is the sacrament of forgiveness. It's the sacrament of justification. And then you go on. Paul writes, if then we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. Why? Christ raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. So we're united with the one who's no longer dead. The resurrection of Jesus really is the pledge and guarantee of our own share in his risen life. So we think about the situation of Christ. You know, he's been raised from the dead. He has forever escaped the dominion of death. He's not going to die again. He died once and for all. That was definitive. It's not going to be repeated. He dies no more. That's what St. Paul writes. We know that Christ raised from the dead dies no more. Death no longer has power over him. As to his death, he died to sin once and for all. And as to life, he lives for God. But what's the conclusion for us? He says, consequently, you too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. So we've passed with Christ through death, burial, and resurrection. Just as Jesus died and rose in the body, so now we're dead to sin and living for God. That's the result of the sacrament of baptism. We now basically are living for God in Christ Jesus, and that's our task, to live in Christ, Mm -hmm. to live the grace of our baptism. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a disciple, to live in this newness of life, to live in Christ, to cooperate with his grace. And that's how we can become holy. Well, it's such a good thing for us to reflect on as we enter into this Holy Week and look forward to Easter. And I think it ties in perfectly with what you were talking about earlier with, uh, you know, the potential for death and destruction that God doesn't will that, but there's this hope in the resurrection. And so I think this is all a great message for all of us to hear. Just a reminder, if anybody has any questions for a future episode of Truth and Charity, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop, submit your question there. You could text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 260- Four three six ninety five ninety eight, and coming up, we'll talk a little bit about the exalted and what that is, and why it's part of the Easter Vigil. Right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and kind of wrapping up the. Easter Vigil readings, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the Exultate, which I never really read through this, I don't think, before kind of preparing for this, and I read through it. You hear it sung, and for some reason, it's harder for me to focus on the words when things are sung like that, and I really felt like it was a rally cry, and almost like a Braveheart, like Mel Gibson sitting on his horse, like yelling to a crowd of people, like, this is what we're going to do. And uh, I just really got a lot more out of it, I feel like, just reading through it. And I thought maybe you could just talk a little bit about this. We don't have a whole lot of time, but is it always 
sung at the Easter Vigil? Yes, okay. and, and it's it, usually by the deacon, uh-huh. or it could be sung by the priest, or even if the priest doesn't can't. It's not easy to sing. I could okay. never sing it. <laughs> okay. I'm always lucky to have a deacon there, but or I'd have a priest sing, or we can even have a layperson sing if there's no priest or deacon who can sing. Okay, but your bishop could not sing this. It would take me all year to learn how to sing this, and I don't have the time. But anyhow, <laughs> the exalted, uh, you know. It goes back to really the fourth century. I think the text that we use now probably came from the seventh century, but the Easter Vigil was always the most important liturgy of the year. It still is today. And it's really interesting. You know, it begins with the blessing of the new fire and outside, and then we have the, the blessing of the the paschal candle and it's lit. The, the paschal candle's a symbol of Christ. You know, it has the letters Alpha and Omega on the, if you look at a Paschal candle, Uh refers to where Jesus says, I, in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then one interesting thing, I don't know if a lot of listeners know this, that five grains of incense are put, inserted into the Paschal candle, and they represent the five wounds of, of, of the glorious Christ. Mm-hmm. But then when it's carried into the dark church and, and then placed in the candle stand and everyone's candles are lit from the Paschal candle, that's when the deacon goes to the ambo and sings the exultet. The exultet is really the Easter proclamation. It's very lengthy and it's beautiful. It's kind of like in the Jewish faith, the Haggadah, which was sung at the Passover supper, this great Hallel, the singing of Psalms 113 to 118. They would have been sung by the way by Jesus and the disciples at the Last Supper. But it's kind of like that. It's just this great song about how we've been delivered from the eternal death of sin. It's like the great announcement of the of the good news, the exultet. It's almost like the gospel. Let me just read the beginning of it if we have time, because mm-hmm. you know, exultet means let them exult. So it begins like that. Exult, let them exult, the hosts of heaven. Exult, let angel ministers of God exult. Let the trumpet of salvation sound aloud our mighty king's triumph. Be glad, let earth be glad, as glory floods her, ablaze with light from her eternal king. Let all corners of the earth be glad, knowing an end to gloom and darkness. Rejoice, let Mother Church also rejoice, arrayed with the lightning of his glory. Let this holy building shake with joy filled with the mighty voices of the peoples. I mean, this is really like amazing. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very exciting. To, it's exciting. You know, first of all, let the angels, let heaven right. exalt, let earth be glad. And then the church, let mother church rejoice. So, I mean, this is exuberant. It really is exuberant. And then it goes on to the deacon sings, Therefore, dearest friends, standing in the awesome glory of this holy light, invoke with me, I ask you, the mercy of God Almighty, that he who has been pleased to number me, though unworthy among the Levites, may pour into me his light unshadowed, that I may sing this candle's perfect praises. And you know this is referring to deacons because it says, You've been pleased to number me among the Levites. The Levites in the Old Testament, they were like the deacons. They were the ones who helped the priests. Uh So that reference to Levites uh, is really interesting. So if it's not a deacon reading it, do they change that line? Yeah, they wouldn't do that part if there's not a deacon, I don't think. I mean, maybe because when you think about it, that's a good question, Kyle. I'll have to look that up. But when you think about it, a priest is still a deacon uh-huh. because you don't lose the character of the diaconate. So, but a layperson would person be able to do yeah. that. Yeah, and then it's like you see how how great and important this exalted is, because then it takes this eucharistic kind of form. This is how solemn it is, because at this point, the words that we only hear at the beginning of the eucharistic prayer, before the preface 
are said by the deacon. He says, the Lord be with you. Mm -hmm. He sings, the Lord be with you. The congregation responds in song and with your spirit. And then he says, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the people responded as right and just. I mean, we... We, don't, we only hear that at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, but here on Easter Vigil Night, we hear it at the proclamation of the exaltat at the very beginning of so Mass. So then we hear it twice? Yeah, and then we'll hear it again. And then it's like the preface, because then it, the, the deacon will continue, it is truly right and just. You know, that's how the priest right. always continues. It goes on and says, it is truly right and just with ardent love of mind and heart and with devoted service of our voice to acclaim our God invisible, the Almighty Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, his Son, his only begotten, who for our sake paid Adam's debt to the Eternal Father, and pouring out his own dear blood, wiped clean the record of our ancient sinfulness. These, then, are the feasts of Passover, in which is slain the Lamb, the one true Lamb, whose blood anoints the doorposts of believers. So we have this reference to the Passover. By the way, this is a great prayer of blessing. It's like what we call an anaphora. Hmm. You know, we speak of the anaphora in the Eucharistic prayer. And it really goes, this is this great song of blessing, of praise of God. And it gets into the very basics of salvation history, referring to Jesus as the true lamb, because Remember, at the Passover, there was always the lamb that was sacrificed and eaten. Well, here it says, these then are the feasts of Passover in which is slain the lamb, the one true lamb whose blood anoints the doorposts of believers. Remember how the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and of the homes of the, of the Israelites before they left uh, slavery in Egypt. And what happened? The angel of death passed over mm-hmm. the homes of the Israelites. So we're really calling to mind the, the first Passover. And then the deacon proclaims, this is the night. This is the night when once you led our forebears, Israel's children, from slavery in Egypt and made them pass dry shod through the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. So all these references to the Exodus. And he says, this is the night that with a pillar of fire banished the darkness of sin. Again, the pillar of fire. Well, here you have the Paschal candle there, which is lit. Kind of reminding us of the pillar of fire that led the Israelites in the Exodus that accompanied them through the dark desert. And he continues, this is the night that even now throughout the world sets Christian believers apart from worldly vices and from the gloom of sin, leading them to grace and joining them to his holy ones. This is beautiful. It continues, this is the night when Christ broke the prison bars of death and rose victorious from the underworld. Our birth would have been no gain had we not been redeemed. O wonder of your humble care for us. O love, O charity, beyond all telling, to ransom a slave, you gave away your son. And now we have a very fascinating section on original sin. O truly necessary sin of Adam, destroyed completely by the death of Christ, O happy fault, that earned so great, so glorious a Redeemer. I don't know anywhere else where it refers to original sin as a happy fault. Right. I mean, this this whole idea that, um, which really I could talk about quite a bit, uh, (laughs) why we would ever call the original sin of Adam and Eve a happy fault, because obviously it's what brought death into the world. Right. But it's happy because it brought the Redeemer into the world. A real paradox when you think about it. Now, it's true as I think the Franciscans normally, you know, the Franciscan tradition is to say that even if man had not sinned, that Christ still would have been sent into the world. That's kind of a theological question. We can at least say 
that original sin is the occasion for God to show the extent of his love. Mm-hmm. Christ may have come anyway. If he would have come, uh, there was no original sin, he wouldn't have come as a victim. But you know, would he have come anyhow? That's a good question. But anyhow, that, the Franciscan said yes. The thing is, Christ did come and he gave us everything. He had the last drop of his blood to grant us salvation. So this necessary sin or this happy fault refers to the fact that Christ's coming, is his redemptive coming is, is so much greater than the original moral illness afflicting humanity. Now, our next program won't be until after Easter, but I'm wondering if we could finish the Exalted. I feel bad that we're like only got through half of it. Yeah. And maybe we can talk a little bit more about that happy fault. Okay. Too. Good. Great. Thank you so much, Bishop, for helping us through all of this, helping us to understand what's going on and God's role in it and how we can respond and help to prepare us for Easter as well. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Kyle. I hope you and your family and all our listeners have a, a very blessed Paschal Triduum and a very blessed and happy Easter. Thank you. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. To hear an extended version of this episode, which includes more of Bishop's thoughts on St. Paul's letter to the Romans, as well as the Exalted, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Podcasts. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.